0: The great thing about design is that it's all of us. It's a language we're all in together.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers and this is Clever. Today I'm talking to home design entrepreneur and best-selling author, Christiane Lemieux. Christiane has founded several successful brands in the home design space, including Dwell Studio, which she founded in 1999 and sold to Wayfair in 2013, the Inside, a direct-to-consumer, technology-driven home furnishings brand, Cloth & Company, a wholesale brand that deals in made-on-demand textiles, and Le Mieux AC, her luxury home furnishings brand. And as a design historian and business expert, Christiane has also contributed her wisdom and talent to books and magazines. Her first book, Undecorate was met with critical acclaim in 2011 and she's just recently released in 2020 her first business book, Frictionless, Why the Future of Everything Will Be Fast, Fluid and Made Just for You. And if this wasn't enough, she's also an investor in the consumer and tech sectors with a focus on female founders, inclusivity and diversity. What a powerhouse.
0: Here's Ann. My name is Christiane Lemieux. I live in New York City, and I am a design entrepreneur, author, designer, technology person, um, and I do it because I really believe in the creative process, and I think that it's something that we can continually build on, not only as humanity, but also in our industry. So I just like to push everything forward on a constant basis.
1: how you do that. But before we get there, can we go back to the beginning? I really like to start building from the ground up. So would you take me back to your childhood and describe your formative years for me, like your hometown, your family dynamic, and what kinds of activities captured your fascination?
0: Sure. Where I am today or where we all are today has everything to do with our formative years, obviously. So I am Canadian. I grew up in Ottawa, Canada. My mother is an academic. And my father is a federal judge, but my parents met at the Sorbonne in Paris in 1969 on a midnight train to Moscow. (laughs) That's so romantic. I know. I know. They were on a school trip. We as a family have spent a lot of our years dividing our time between Canada and Paris. You know, my father's French. My mother's English, Canadian. And so that, that's really it, it's sort of the backdrop. And they spend and have spent a lot of time traveling. So I think my first international trip was when I was two years old and we never stopped after that. So my greatest memories of growing up were, you know, Christmases on the boat going down the Nile and Egypt and India. I mean, they they literally took me all over the world. And I think it was the greatest gift because... I saw so much. I just uncovered a duffel bag of slides that my mom took. Oh, that she, man. She, yeah, That's I know. That's gold. Know. That's treasure. I know. It's treasure. She wanted me to, she wants me to convert them into digital imagery, which I'm going to, you know, dig up somebody to do. But I think the, the basis for me for curiosity, for an appreciation of aesthetics, for my deep, deep passion with design and art history. That's where it all comes from. It comes from traveling the world my entire life. You know, my parents never had a, a second home or anything like that. The, the sort of the, the world ended up being our second home. And what a gift. I cannot thank them enough. And I'm trying to do the same thing with my children now. It sounds like
1: you kind of had keys to the world from a really young age via travel and your parents. But I'm guessing if you're Mom was an academic, then she also probably imparted some of this voracious curiosity. What
0: kind of academic was she? So my, my mother studied Russian literature and, and language. And so she studied it at, at the Sorbonne and then later at Middlebury and then at MGU in Moscow. She's a sort of a linguist is deeply fascinated by Russian literature. So slightly different than art history and design history, but I think academia nonetheless. We also have a side family theory that she may or may not be a spy or may or may not have been a spy. We can't we don't know because we can't get that confirmed, but we were in some odd places at odd times, so who knows? Oh my god, what mystery <laughs> and
1: intrigue. How exciting.
0: <laughs> that happened over Christmas this year. So we were like, huh, that really checks. So I don't know. The question, you know, what's it's just out there.
1: <laughs> huh? Yep. That's a mystery worth digging into.
0: Seriously, or a great screenplay at some point. Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yes. So growing up, it sounds like it was very textural. You had the inputs from all over the world of not just, you know, land formations, but other cultural heritage and craft and color palettes and textures and smells. And uh, what a sensorially rich background to, to... develop your creativity from.
0: I mean, correct. Yeah. So I think that when my parents dragged me through the Louvre on a Sunday morning with a, and I complained, now I look back and just thank them.
1: Yeah, no, I have the (laughs) same thing. I remember it was the Louvre where my dad coined the term museum burnout because we were just young and we had seen so much I couldn't process it anymore. (laughs) I was like, get me some ice cream.
0: (laughs) You know, it's so true. Like even as an adult, like you can only even do one museum in New York and the, you know, yeah, the ability to take it all in, process it, understand what it means to you, how it's influencing you, you know, how you can be inspired is a lot. Okay. So
1: were you traveling all the way up through to your college years and beyond? Like, it was travel a constant background
0: for you? Like, constant, constant, constant. It isn't my thing. I'm going to Nairobi on Friday. You know, it's the battery I plug myself into. And I would say that the, the, sa- the same thing is true of New York City. So I, you know, obviously, I came down here a lot as a child to, you know, for the museum and the museum burnout with my parents. But I remember in high school, we came down to do an art class at the Met. And um, we came down from Canada and I stood on Worcester Street, not one hundred feet from where I live now, and I was like, "Wow, this is home." And it's because there's something about the energy in New York, and it's one of these funny things you were either all in or you're all out. New York's is like a is like binary, right? And so for me, through the ups and downs, I mean I've lived through nine eleven I just through the pandemic, like you know the the financial crisis in two thousand and eight. I mean this has been my home for much more than half of my life, there's something about this place with respect to the energy, the inspiration, the culture, what you see and feel, smell, taste, all of those things every day that is such a big part of my creative process. I mean, New York really is the energy that powers me, I think.
1: It is a very concentrated hub of energy and so many rich pockets of flavor and inputs that are constantly flowing through it. That's why they
0: call it the greatest city in the world. It's a portal to something. You just feel it. And it's not subtle, obviously. Um, and it's also not for everybody. The thing about New York is you have to be willing to take it on every day.
1: <laughs> so back to your youth. What about the teenage years? Like what flavor was pronounced for you? Were you industrious, rebellious, lost, super focused? How were you expressing yourself and your creativity then?
0: So I was very rebellious to the point where my parents sent me to boarding school. Because, oh, damn, I want to yeah, hear this. <laughs> yes. I, I, I will say the following, though, pretty willingly on my part. I mean, I got up to all kinds of trouble. I'm the you know person who snuck out of the house at night and I was very rebellious. I I was really independent from early on, and I'm seeing some of the exact same attributes in my children. I can't tell if it's DNA and nurture versus nature. I think about this (laughs) a lot. I just didn't want to be told what to do. I wanted to find my own path very early on. And it turns out that my path and the way my parents wanted to raise me and the rules and structures that they wanted to put around were not congruous. So they sent me to boarding school, but I also went willingly. I lived in a smaller town in Canada called Ottawa. They sent me to a girls boarding school in Toronto. It was like a step up. It was like moving from Washington to New York. And for me, it was eye opening. I got to see and experience a much bigger city. For me, it was much more interesting. Um, and I think that that was very formative too, because it, it made the jump to New York very easy. That sounds like the daughter of a spy. <laughs> we secretly call her Agent M now. Like the whole the whole family. <laughs> and maybe it was also the spy
1: in her who's like I can't have my daughter sneaking out at night. It's just not
0: Right. <laughs> safe. Yeah. Or, or under my watch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and wait a second. How is this happening to me?
3: Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: It was interesting because I went to uh you know, I went to an all girl school and uh, you know, looking back, I also, you know, when you remove all of the social issues of a teenager, you can focus. I don't think it's for everybody, but for me, it, it ended up working very much to my benefit because I went from the girl who snuck out to the girl who wanted to do really well in school. That was, I think, very helpful.
1: That is very helpful. Wow. Did you find yourself like in the trenches forming deep long-term bonds with other people who are in the same formative situation?
0: I did. And the the other thing that was interesting about that experience was it was a pretty international group of humans from all over the place. Oh, that's nice. You know, there were girls who came from Iran and hearing their stories was so interesting and girls from Africa and girls from all over some Europeans, but and all over Canada, there was definitely a much more diverse and global outlook in boarding school than in my local public school.
1: Wow, you've had a, a nice aperture on the world. Okay, so at what point did the love and fascination with art and design strike you? And did that drive you to study at Queen's University and Parsons. Can you connect those dots for me? Yeah,
0: Yes. You know, I w- w- would be painting and sketching and drawing from the moment that I showed up. Um, so I remember my parents sent me to Montessori when I was three years old, and there was an art station in the classroom. And I, instead of rotating, would try and just stay there. Um, and, and do that and only that. And that was the first, you know, when I look back, that was the, the, the first kind of experience for me where I think I fell into the flow because I would totally lose track of time and space and everything. And that's continued through my life. So for me, it's the sort of the artistic process is the place that I'm the happiest and feel the most comfortable. So, um, it was pretty early, it was pretty evident to me early on the road I was going to take. And, you know, I remember, you know, other people were asking for, you know, candy. I was asking my, my dad for art supplies. You know, it's been a fairly constant thing. My parents wouldn't let me go to design school right out of the gate. They're, they're academics. So they wanted me to get an an undergraduate degree. So I went to Queen's University and I studied art history. When I had proved myself worthy, they let me apply to design school and I came to, I came to New York to go to Parsons. And what did you study at Parsons? I studied fashion design, of all things. I mean, Parsons is an incredible school. To be honest, I mean, my undergraduate degree was easy compared to the workload that they piled on at Parsons. I mean, it's one of these things that's like part university, part trade school, and they really teach you how much work you're going to have to do to be in any of these creative fields, which is a lot, you know, and it's hands-on. It was a 12 hour day at Parsons from, you know, sketching for fashion illustration all the way through to sewing and all these things. But I, what it, what it taught me, I think, is A, respect for the creative process. B, it gave me the tools to understand how hard and what, what a sort of voluminous amount of work this was going to be. It also taught me the sort of design fundamentals. I think the interesting thing about the creative process is, when you have yours, you can apply it to, you know, whether it's food styling or fashion or interiors, the biggest sort of bridge for me was textile design, right? So in fashion, I really learned textile design. And that was um, the bridge between fashion and interiors for me.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's true. I found the same thing. I studied furniture design. But I was maybe even in New York City when you were, because I went to FIT for a couple of years. When I learned the process of designing and building hands-on furniture, I was able to see the world in an exploded view. And I was like, well, now I can build anything, Like whether that's an idea, a platform, a system. When you know how to work with yourself from zero to this, you can apply it to anything. It's just magic. Yeah.
0: Correct. Yep.
1: So learning all of those lessons at Parsons and putting in all that work and connecting yourself to textile design—is that how you launched yourself into the professional world? And what were your first few steps like for you in the in the early years professionally? How did you find your entrepreneurial footing, especially?
0: So I started Dwell Studio a year after I graduated from Parsons. That's um, it. Um, yep. Oh my god! <laughs> so that's um, wild. I've, I've, only had, I've only had two real jobs in my life. One was the first job I took. So I had a friend at Parsons who married a gentleman who was in venture capital, who had bought a home furnishings company called Portico, which was in New York City. In my final year of school, she had me go and meet with him. And he said, look, I need somebody to be a creative director here. This is, you know, it was a bed and bath store. So a lot, a lot of bedding, textiles and things like that. He's like, do you want to try? And I said, Sure. So I left Parsons, went to be the design director at Portico. You know, started designing and putting things on the floor, and they started to resonate with consumers. The interesting thing is that coming from Canada, you know, wallpaper had started there. So I knew Tyler Brule and you know that whole team, and was really deeply influenced by mid-century. It was it was really a a thing in Canada before it became a big thing. In the United States, that, that was sort of the, the language I was speaking. And so I, you know, started designing textiles that were sort of more modern, mid-century focused, put them on the floor at, at Portico. They resonated and I, I just decided I was going to do it myself. Um, and I had, you know, no idea how. And I just fumbled my way through it.
1: What do you attribute that to? Is that just courage and moxie or was that naivete or a mix of both?
0: Oh, I think it was a very serious mix of both. You know, I think my parents told me I could do anything, so I believe them. And then, (gasps) oh (laughs) man. (laughs) That's awesome. And I also think that I didn't know. I didn't know all the things that I fundamentally know now, which is, you know, how much money it takes to build a company, all of these things. I just, figured my way through it. So I launched the company. I launched Dwell in 2000. Like, I don't know, I was just graduating from school. At the same time, one of, I mean, this is all serendipitous luck too. One of the people that I worked with at Portico for that short amount of time went on to Creighton Barrel. Her name is Celeste. She's amazing. She's still a friend of mine. She told the, the team at Crate and Barrel, oh, there's a designer at Portico who's gone on her own and she's doing some interesting things. Why don't you see if she'll do some work for you? And so what I did is on one hand, I started a private label business, which I called Design Space. And on the other, I started uh, Dwell. And I did a whole bunch of work. For all these larger companies, Crate and Barrel being the first one, but then I went on to do Walmart.com and Room and Board, a whole bunch of different home companies. And, you know, even Bed Bath and Beyond, I started producing in Asia and shipping containers to the U.S. I mean, it, it got, it, it scaled very quickly. And I used the funds from the private label design to actually build the brand, Duel. Well. You know, it was interesting. The, the world was very different then. You know, I had traveled to Asia a lot, so I had some connections there, so I was able to do sourcing very easily. It kind of all got tied up in this interesting bow for me, because between the, the travel, the language, the ability to set this all up pretty seamlessly and inexpensively and actually do all the work myself, because I was so used to it at Parsons, you know, working 18 hours a day, that I got this off the ground without um, any outside funding.
1: Man, that sounds like such a heavy lift, but I guess you did have some pathways already carved. Not that that makes it easy, but I'm also just wondering and hoping, like did you have some mentors you could call up and and ask for advice when things got overwhelming or when you hit like a place where you'd never been before? Or were you really just like, I think I'll try this and if I, it I works,
0: was, <laughs> like if I'm I'm totally honest with you. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll just figure it out (laughs) because I also, I was really young, right? So I didn't have any mentors. I'd never really worked anywhere. And I, I was, it's just like a puzzle for me. It's interesting in retrospect, so much of entrepreneurship ends up being creative problem solving. That's all you're really doing on a constant basis. (laughs)
2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed Twins. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. You know, speaking of your serial entrepreneurship, uh, you've launched many brands since Dwell Studio, including Living by Christiane Lemieux. Cloth & Company, Le Mieux And The Inside, most recently, can you walk me through your entrepreneurial progression and some of the major highlights and lessons that you've integrated along the way?
0: Yeah. So it turns out maybe in the end, I'm as much a serial entrepreneur as I am a, a designer. I think um, yes. I think I like to build things if I'm intellectually honest, I'm much better at building things than running things. So I'm a builder and less an operator. So I built Well Studio over 13 years, and then I sold it to Wayfair in 2014. It was really interesting for me um, because I went, that was my second job. So my first job was at Portico. My second job was at Wayfair. When I went to Wayfair, I got to learn really the e-commerce fundamental from one of the best CEOs in the e-commerce business. I mean, Niers is pretty, pretty phenomenal. Uh, you know, and he, the way he thinks and approaches things is so wildly different from how I do that I think that there were a lot of really interesting learning moments for me. He is very rational, very focused, very engineering driven. He, you know, he stack ranks everything. He's methodical in ways that I wasn't. I mean, I, you know, some creatives are very methodical, very process-oriented, very structured. I just am not, right? And so I learned a lot from being there. And I also, I think, saw the landscape in a slightly different way than my colleagues did because I was coming at it from a creative point of view, right? Right into a very technology-driven environment. And so that is where cloth and company and then after that, the inside came from, Because I realized that, you know, there were all these cutting edge things happening in technology that apply to the industry that I, you know, that I'm in and that I love. And, you know, were there ways we could bring more interesting, thoughtful solutions to our consumers, right? To our customers. And so what people really want to do in home furnishings is design. And by designing, you know, taking your form and putting your own fabric to it and designing your room is a really great tool. And technology allows us to do that pretty seamlessly now. I worked with some of my favorite factories. We got digital printers. We got very quick throughput. This is prior to, obviously, the supply chain issues we're having right now, as well as component shortages and things like this. But theoretically, you know, we could take a customer, could choose their design, have it printed on upholstery fabric, have it upholstered, and then turned around to them in under four weeks right? And this pre-pandemic, this was a completely feasible business model. And the great thing about all of these, you know, putting all these things together is that nobody's holding inventory. There aren't gigantic uh, warehouses to heat and or air condition. We're not having to produce 3,000 yards of textiles using, you know, 10,000 gallons of water. It's also much gentler for the planet. And that's, you know, I think that's important too. And I think technology is allowing us to do that thoughtfully across a lot of manufacturing. So I just wanted to put together all of these ideas into, you know, again, problem solving into a company and put it out there for consumers. And that's what we did at The inside.
1: Yeah, it is so fascinating. I also think if you are a manufacturer and you have to commit to sort of anticipating how many of a certain piece are going to sell, then you also like need to commit the marketing dollars to that. And then that's what you kind of put forward. And when you don't have to do that, you really do allow the consumer a lot more creativity with their options and their product choices because you're not really invested in what they buy. You're just invested in how they buy it and getting it to them in a way that's, as, as you say, frictionless.
0: I think that's right. And I also think that, especially in our industry, I think the fashion industry as well, these creative industries, I mean, we, we have so much more access to inspiration, imagery, beauty. We can really start to formulate our sort of aesthetic opinion. And I think that you know, it's, it's much more niche and segmented than people think. You know, then people can go after exactly what they want and, the, you know, they can modify. Things that are 90% there to be 100% there, you know, to really make them happy with their purchases. And like for us, when you're holding somebody's hand and helping them create their home, it's not only an honor, but also you want them to have exactly what they want. And I don't think that's, you know, page 305 of a catalog anymore. I think it's personal. And I think that during the pandemic, we also all learned that our homes are sort of our everything. And they certainly are now. And it looks like they will be that for the foreseeable future, right? So I keep talking about the decade of home. I think we're going into the decade of home because I think people are thinking about their spaces and how they make them feel a lot more than they used to.
1: I 100% agree. And I also, I teach furniture design here at Rhode Island School of Design. And I'm seeing something I've been aware of, but it's now really coming through in the generation of designers that I'm working with is they're actively designing for a more itinerant, nomadic kind of lifestyle because they want to move from place to place, but they don't want to bring cheap, disposable, throwaway furniture into their spaces. They want to be able to fill that space with the things that they need that have meaning and care and intention baked into them. I think that's just a fascinating sort of evolution that we're in the middle of for the the way we interface with our objects. I think it's really important. And it's also important for us to feel grounded, secure, and able to launch ourselves out into the world with the most momentum we possibly can if we're coming from a home space that feels like it's truly restorative for us.
0: I, I think that's completely true. and I And if we learned nothing else during the pandemic— I think that that's the lesson we learned. I think the most interesting outcome of this is going to be what does work look like? Because even the most traditional office sort of bound businesses are having to reevaluate that. So our homes not only function as the place we lay our head at night, which is, you know, in some ways what it really used to be before. Now they have to be you know, our home, our office, in some cases, our schoolroom, all of these other um, sort of aspects of our lives are driven from our homes now. So I think everything is more thoughtful. And I totally agree with you. People want to invest in their homes now in a way that throwaway doesn't feel as safe or correct.
1: I'm really interested in, in this entrepreneurial side of you, but I'm also fascinated by the fact that you're an author and frequent contributor to magazines. Clearly, you have something to say, but I'm also wondering why you are compelled to write. I mean, your books include Undecorate, The No Rules Approach to Interior Design, The Finer Things, which is timeless furniture, textiles, and details. And recently, you wrote the book Frictionless, which is directly related to the inside and and your system of creating A business that is frictionless in order for people to acquire things that are custom to them in a way that is also sort of comparable to the Amazon primization of the world. On a personal level, how does being an author complement your endeavors and, and why are you compelled to write?
0: I think that for me, just the act of writing is also a creative process, right? So it's just stretching a different muscle than the sketching or the, you know, some of these other, the, the sort of tactile designing. I'm really intellectually curious. And so sometimes um, that curiosity vends with, you know, the, the greater curiosity. So, I learned a ton at Wayfair. And when, when I was thinking about what the future of commerce looked like, I realized that it has to be frictionless. Like just think about all of our experiences. If you get into a situation in, in any kind of internet scenario where you get down a rabbit hole and there's nobody to talk to and this, that, and the other thing, like you're out. You bounce and that's it. And I learned that really fundamentally at Wayfair. And one of the things that they're phenomenal at is customer service. So if you look at the you sort of the happiness scale of their customers versus a lot of their competitors, I mean, it's night and day. And I, I think that just this just got, got amplified during the pandemic was that people who held their customers hands, whether it was in person or virtually, those are the companies that have succeeded and the companies that make things easy and frictionless for their consumers are the ones that we're loyal to. I mean, Amazon Prime is Amazon Prime because who says no to that? Even if it's slightly more expensive, you know that the process is going to be so frictionless that it's worth it to you anyway. We are also, between Bezos and Steve Jobs and swiping and Prime and all these things, we're also being retrained as humans, right, to behave in a certain way. So if you're starting a company, and you make it difficult to interface to transact to get product, there's nobody on the other phone to talk to you to help you, it's not going to succeed. That's the knowledge I wanted to impart to any early stage entrepreneur. Think about how it's frictionless. Otherwise, you're going to have a very hard time competing regardless of how much money you raise, right? I mean, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. It, customers have to be satisfied. It's dead simple. That's what I learned, and that's why I wanted to, to to share that book. I'm writing another book right now that's sort of a follow-up to The Finer Things, which is kind of a loose encyclopedia of furniture. So we're going to start to kind of break down each design category thoughtfully and, and write some design history. Oh, wonderful. I'm looking forward to that. When's that out? That is out in spring of 2024.
1: I'll keep an eye out for that. Back to the writing a little bit. You said you're intellectually curious. Does the writing actually help you kind of organize your thoughts? It's kind of obvious to me how it might be a supportive marketing endeavor, but it doesn't feel like it's just coming from like a savvy marketer.
0: I don't think you I don't think you write really big Textbook books. If you're a savvy marketer, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, w- I wish it was a savvy marketing. Book. It's like a journey for me. I mean, I, I, how do I ended up writing a textbook or an encyclopedia of furniture? I have no idea. But I, I would say that I went on a creative journey, and I, you know, I started talking to my editor, and she was like, "You have to write that book." That's how I get backed into it. It's more just a sort of a—if this makes any sense—like a a conversation I'm having with the design community. It's like, do you think this is cool? Yeah. Should we do this? Yeah. Is this important? (laughs) Yes.
1: Yes, that does make sense. Um, This is a conversation I'm having with the design community right now.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So you know exactly. Different avenue. Yes. Exactly. It's the same thing. That makes a lot of sense. It's a reverence for ideas.
1: Well, speaking of ideas, I really want to talk about your creative process because, you know, you've already mentioned at the top that once you have a process, you can apply it to all of your endeavors. You are a designer, an author, a serial entrepreneur, an investor, which we haven't talked about yet, and a design historian. And so we've kind of heard how all of your thinking works to glue those together under the umbrella of Christiane Lemieux. But I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a overview of your process, like from the inception of an idea to like nurturing it into a thing?
0: You know, if I, I look from 30,000 feet, a lot of this is informed by travel, right? It's informed by a lot of the inputs I've had in my lifetime. And then I do a lot of this through the lens of design, So I really believe the creative process is a continuum, right? If we're all talking to each other, there's very few completely original ideas. They come from some of the textiles I just designed, starting in ancient in Egypt. So we've been speaking in this same visual and creative language for as long as we've you know been walking and talking to each other. I think it's a continuum. My creative process comes from, I'm inspired by this. And then I dive into, here's the history of this. So if I'm going to make a curved sofa, right, if I'm going to design it, where is it coming from? You know, some of it may be Royer, some of it may be Noguchi, some of it may be something I saw last week, but it's coming from something. And I really, really am very, very serious about talking about where the inspiration comes, from what the continuum of the design history is, the why now, um, and building on that, right? So like, I love Royer's Urs Polaire so far, but it is very large, has very big arms, is very, very specific. Um, but the the shape of it is visual poetry. So how do you take some of these, you know, building blocks and then make them, perfect for current spaces, sizes, you know, how we live and function. So I really think about it from that kind of 360 point of view. And then when you look at it, how does it make you feel? How does it make you feel when you sit in it? I really approach design from it's like my mental blender. So it's, you know, the historic continuum, the how does it make you feel? The where was I inspired? And what story does it tell for you in your space? And how does it add to your life? I think these things are really important.
1: It is. They're all very important. And I can kind of interpret this also through your entrepreneurial problem solving in terms of, you know, how does it add to your life? What's the experience like? How does it make you feel? Even through the customer operation Mm -hmm. for you personally, what's the criteria or the why now of starting a new entrepreneurial endeavor for you, knowing that it's going to you know, consume so much of your life and energy. Mm-hmm. It's got to have meaning for you in order to do that. How do you drill down to find that meaning?
0: Obviously, that's evolved over time. But now, it, one, it has to give me joy. Two, I think it has to be doing something accretive, right? Like it has to be building on something meaningful. You know, I think now I'm building on my, on my dwell legacy, on the whole lifestyle brand, but bringing in all of the things that I've learned along the way. I, I mean, one of the things that I, that I'm very cognizant of is that I don't want to create products that you throw away, right? Which is why I think the design continuum is important. I'd like to be able to create things that people love and live with and, hopefully, you know, pass on as opposed to just trend and pushing things out and product for product's sake. I think that that's where consumerism is headed. You know, I think that we're becoming philosophically much more aligned with our European friends who buy less, buy beautifully, invest. And I think that that's the right way to go. So I really try and bring that philosophy to the things that I start now. You know, I really don't believe that you can find white space in the market, build one product, market, market, market on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Google Shopping, SEO, and build something of value. It's really driven by the customer. They have to be along for the journey with you, and you have to be doing something that's helpful to them.
1: I think now there's also a real need to resonate with the values of the company. Mm-hmm. So... You started Dwell Studio all on your own, um, very young. Very young. Now you've got several successful brands under your belt. I'm wondering how you would characterize your leadership and relationship building style.
0: It's interesting. That has also evolved along the way too. Now, I think that a great collaborative environment is the best way to maximize output. So, you know, I always say this to to everybody on my team, you know, 10 heads is better than one. You're going to see something that I don't see. I'm going to see something that you don't see. Let's have a conversation. That's really become my, my leadership style. It wasn't necessarily always that way. But especially in creative fields, I mean, everybody's always got something thoughtful to add. So we do a lot of back and forth on my team. Our litmus test is, would I put this in my own home? We're not creating product um, just for the the sort of creation of product's sake. We're really thoughtfully putting stuff out into the universe.
1: I like the idea of creating a truly collaborative environment. I feel like that is the real richness of life, right? When you're in a soup with other perspectives and ideas, and you all get to be sort of nourished by what everybody else is bringing to the pot. It's just the best. Mm Mm-hmm. So a big mission of mine here at this podcast is to humanize designers. And in doing that, I like to sort of celebrate the full spectrum of your humanity. So that means I usually ask some personal questions too. Sure. If you just want to get right in there, I love to know what you would consider your highest priority in life, in your whole life, not necessarily just your work life.
0: Wow. Right now is... Raising my children. How old are your children? My children are 14 and 16, and are teenagers in New York City, which is challenging in ways which I, I could never have known. Nor is the sort of introduction of social media into parenting something oh, that's e- so yeah, something that's easy to navigate. Dude, so, yeah. when I'm not working and designing, I spend a lot of my time. Trying to feel my way through that uh, and do the best job I possibly can. That's sort of my, my biggest priority. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) And I gotta tell you, it's not easy. I laugh a lot because I thought, wow, it would be such a great gift to my kids to raise them in New York. They'll be at the Met every weekend, going to Broadway, all these things. And then, we get hit with a pandemic and then you layer Instagram, Snapchat and TikTok on top of that with a lot of uh, time on your hands and it becomes a pretty daunting challenge. But then beyond that, you know, as I as I grow La Muella C as a as sort of a, a brand, I think about what kind of company I want to build, what kind of example um, mentor I want to be, you know, as I think about the next generation of people that work in our industry and You know, trying to do the right thing. But also, you know, and down at the product level, we just want to create things that hopefully don't end in a landfill or a trend-only breakout in a digital publication. You know, just trying to create something of longevity, substance, that's helpful to people and goes to the planet. Yeah, it has a soul, (laughs) right?
1: Is there something on the personal development side of things, is there something that continues to challenge you? Or where would you say your like leading edge of growth is in terms of you on the ladder to self-actualization?
0: We're in such a huge flux right now. I mean, the pandemic changed the way we experience almost everything. Um, and it's, you know, fundamentally changed the sort of working schedule, the need to be in a fixed place. Almost everything is up for grabs. You know, I, I'm in New York because my children are in school here. But after my children are done school here, you know, the landscape becomes wide open because my team is already virtual because I built it. I, you know, I launched the brand into the market in August of 2020. All of this has been in the middle of and or, you know, post First wave of pandemic. Mm -hmm. So you know, my team is dispersed, it's all over the world. It will probably never have a, a, a sort of structured office in the way that I would have, you know, in 2019. So what does that mean for me? What does that mean for the people that work with me? What does that mean for our industry at large? These are the questions that fascinate me right now because it's so interesting to read the tea leaves in this complete, great upheaval of a longstanding tradition of how we work and live our lives. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about that. It's problem solving. It goes right back to what I really love to do. And so I'm trying to figure this out. (laughs)
1: still trying to figure it
0: out. You've been doing that. I know that's all I've ever done. That's my sort of mission in life. I'm trying to figure it out. And there's a lot to figure out now.
1: Yeah. And there's also this extra important, urgent imperative that we figure it out in a
0: way that is thoughtful, sustainable,
1: sustainable, thoughtful, and also much more caretaking of our own humanity.
3: Oh, I totally agree. And inclusive. Look, the great thing about design
0: is that it's all of us. It's a language we're all in together. And it's one we all speak. And I think that the inclusivity of that, hopefully, you know, much more thoughtful going forward is the relationship we're in with each other. The future is wide open. And that figuring that out is very interesting to me.
1: So the future is wide open. What is in the pipeline for you in the near future? And also what do you see for yourself on the very distant horizon?
0: Well, in the near future, I am trying to build this new brand in this new world, in this new way, a sort of multi-category brand um, with a dispersed team in a world where retail is in total flux. So do you have storefronts? Do you have catalogs? Do you sell online? Do you do all of it? Do you, you know, wholesale? I mean, all of it is up for grabs. And I'm honestly feeling my way through that because I think that the omni of everything is actually going to be what works. So being part of all of these channels of distribution from a business perspective, I think are important. So you know, I'm I'm feeling my way through that, trying to understand what it means to be a brand builder in 2022 and beyond, um, because it's completely different, right? I mean, you, nobody would have ever told you that social media would have been the biggest driver of of brand awareness and sales. I mean, even five years ago, people would have told you that that was not possible, and now that we know. It very much is. And, you know, this morning I'm reading Meta might shut down in Europe. Like, what does that mean? It's changing minute by minute in ways that it never did before. Seeing around those corners is, one, very difficult, but two, really interesting. So I think I spent a lot of time thinking about what the future will bring. In the distant, the very distant future, you know, I, I don't know because I, everything's changing so quickly. It used to be you could have these concrete plans, but now technology is throwing us so many curveballs that the ideas that we grew up with, even the storylines that we were told over and over again, just are dissipating, right? I mean, who knows?
1: In a general sense, though, do you see yourself as like... Enjoying a large population of grandchildren. Um, <laughs> do you see yourself taking a slower pace and con- sailing the world? or <laughs> I guess I'm trying to get a sense of like, you're always problem solving and looking around the corner. Is there ever like a moment where tranquility or just peace?
0: Yes, I'd really like to get my pilot's license. Yes, Yes. okay. And and fly a small plane across the globe. I really would. And That would be so amazing. Tell, like, a photograph along the way. Ah, like a human drone
1: photographer. (laughs)
0: Like a human drone. I'd like to be a human drone for a while. (laughs) And yes, I'd like to have a gazillion grandchildren if possible. Because the other thing that I think we all learned on this pandemic journey is... When you sit in your home with your family, how awesome they are. And like, <laughs> here you are with your team. And so now I want a much bigger team. Like I, like, I, I wish I could go back and have seven more children. It's a little <laughs> bit late for me for that now, but I think it would be, you know, the importance of family. And I think that the having a great home that sets the scaffold for that cannot be Undervalue. You know, I I had dinner last night with my kids and I lit candles and we did a whole thing and it's just a regular school night. But I was like, wow, I mean, here we are. We're sitting and we're having a conversation. And you know what? Two years ago, when I was on the amped up hamster wheel and I was coming home from a meeting and doing this and getting on a plane and doing that, and, and then all of a sudden I slowed down, it allowed me to appreciate one, you know, how important. Not only my my family and my you know extended family as my friends, but also how important it is to have a place that they can come home to and and congregate. My son said to me last night he's like, "You can never sell this this apartment mom, you can never sell it because it's my childhood home and I was like, you're right, and you know feel that, and I'm glad you feel that way and I'm glad it sustained you through the pandemic, and I'm glad that you're very um, permissive of your d- designer mom who cha- <laughs> who changes the furniture schemes all the time and like I know you don't really like it but I I'm grateful that you know you're along for the journey with me
1: Oh that's beautiful and it makes perfect <laughs> sense you can't really think about what would make people happy in their own homes unless you've built that home for yourself so
0: exactly and it's not and you know at the end of the day. It's not about stuff. It's just about the feeling, right? It's about the
1: feeling and how the stuff can help create that feeling. feeling.
0: Well, exactly. Because if you're happy and the things that you surround yourself with make you happy, the feeling will be exactly what you want it to be. It'll feel like home.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Christiane. This has been really wonderful talking to you. And I really appreciate you sharing your story. Thanks, Amy. Hey, thanks for listening. To see images of Christiane and her work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It helps other people who would enjoy these stories find them. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. You can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011.